1: back to the Beatles City Podcast. In our last episode, fifth Beatle Pete Best shared his memories of the Casbah and Hamburg. On this show, he reveals exactly what he thought of each Beatle and recalls the heartbreaking moment he was told by Brian Epstein that he'd been replaced by Ringo Starr. We're your hosts, Laura Davis and Ellen
0: Kerwin. If you enjoy the podcast and want to help us grow and reach more Beatles fans, make sure you rate, review and subscribe to the Beatles City Podcast.
1: So what was it like going out to Hamburg and working with all the individual Beatles?
2: I suppose you could turn around and say they take him first, uh, they'll name John, John Lennon simply because of the fact he was my favourite out of the band. People I suppose look upon John or at that time looked upon John as being a bit of a rebel, very sardonic, you know, caustic-witted, would tend to take the mickey out of people if the opportunity arose. It's part of his character, but I was fortunate to see in Germany because we used to spend a lot of time after the gigs, I was talking about it before, where we relaxed, you know, and it was normally over a couple of beers. And I found that there was another side of John where he talked about his family, um, his, his girlfriend, you know, and it was very much that John that I saw in those days is what John, the world saw John Lennon evolve to many, many years afterwards. So for me, he put the sardonic John... And the John that I saw together, and that made John the complete man for me. You know, great musician and a great person. Um, but he had to discover his inner soul. Paul was very much, and still is even to this day, a uh, mega PR man, right? His sole purpose in life was to let everyone know what Beatles wanted to do, and it was a mission. And if it hadn't been for him, apart from the correspondence which you see lying all around the museum, my letters, Response. It'd be very much a case of, you know, people in Liverpool wouldn't have known about it. But Paul made a mission of making sure people in the right places knew about the Beatles so that we got the utmost publicity we could in those days for a humble band that came out of Liverpool. Mm. Musicianship, creativity, absolutely fantastic. Even at that early age, you know, he'd sit on a piano and turn around and say, here's a little song I've written. You know, and those little songs that he'd written became our first originals, which we put down on record. So again, a person very much PR orientated, musicianship, songwriting talent goes without goes without saying. George, the youngest uh, in the band, and most probably the quietest. Um, a lot of people turn around and say I was the quietest. I would turn around and say, I'd head to my bets and turn around and say George is the quietest. Very much into his guitar play. At that stage, you've got to remember when I first met him, he was 16, 17. Mm. Sole purpose at that time was to make himself the best guitarist in Liverpool. Uh, and that's what he did. He was forever coming back and turning around saying, I've just learnt this Jet Atkins piece. Just listen to me play the Carl Perkins solo off, you know, glad all over. And uh, you know, it was, it was wonderful. I suppose out the, out the trio, John and Paul became the songwriters that got all the acclaim. George was a great songwriter as well, you know, and that blossomed forth in material which he released, you know, as, as a solo career. And there were times very much when he was a, a little kid, you know, in Hamburg and in Liverpool. You'd see evidence of that, you know, you'd see him working away on a chord structure in a couple of words. And then when people came into the room, he'd put it away and he'd become the normal George, you know. Very much into his guitar playing. Songwriting, stage presence. uh, Amicability, yes. Very much on the top rank. Stu Sutcliffe, smallest in the band but the biggest heart. Bass player, and I will always defend him for this. A lot of people have turned around and said, the same as I get chastised with, you know, not being a good drummer. Stu has gone through a lot of criticism. When he was alive, and since since his death, turning around and saying he wasn't a bad, he was a bad bass player. He wasn't, bass playing in those days was very simple. And it was easy for the drummer to lock into what he was playing. He played simple rock and roll bass, but what he played was good. The other side of Stu was this fantastic uh, art, you know, he was a brilliant artist. I was amazed sometimes I'd see him sitting in, a, in the club in the Kaiser Keller, and he'd take out a sketch pad, a piece of charcoal, and he'd pick someone up from the audience and draw them, you know, sketch them. And of course, you know, the world later saw his creativity, you know, and his, his art collection toured the world. So to me, he was a musician who deserves more acclaim and as regards his artistic virtues they were up there with the topmost people I admire him a great deal
1: it's really interesting that you've got things here that people won't have seen before and they or they just won't have known about this whole chunk of Beatles history what else what else have you got that that our listeners won't have necessarily heard
0: about? Well, basically, we, we the floor we're on is 59 to 62, but the museum is from 59 to 1970. And the collection basically covers that, that period. So it's very authentic, very unique, original. They haven't seen the items before, because a lot of the items have been a private collection up to this point. There's only 300 items in the museum at this moment. There's actually over 1,500 in the collection. And it's basically from jewelry they wore, instruments they played, clothes they wore, posters, flyers, (laughs) dolls, you name it, we've got it. And we're the first museum of our our type of our ilk, which is why our our strap line, uh, correctly so is, the world's most authentic Beatles Museum. And, and is that's your, exactly is your what
1: personal collection that we're yeah. seeing, isn't
0: it? Items that were um, given to me by my mother, items given to me by Peace, items from Peace, and then, of course, my father, I have a different father to Peace, my father became their roadie, uh, went on to be their road manager, and then became the managing director of Apple Corp, so he was with them for this whole period, and, of course there's items right through that whole period when my dad was saying, well, you may as well have that, you may as well have that, you can have that, take that, you know. So um, it covers their whole journey.
1: And you obviously consider yourself a Beatles fan.
0: I think everyone's a Beatles fan in one way or another, even if they don't admit it to themselves. If they don't like the Beatles and they're not a Beatles fan, they'd most probably be horrified to find out that one of the bands that they really like have been influenced by the Beatles. You know, I mean, from a heavy metal, you've got Ozzy Osbourne, you know, he's Black Sabbath, you know, a huge heavy metal star. What, he's a huge Beatles fan. Yeah, Steve Tyler. He's a huge Beatles fan. Then you go to, to pop pop bands. It, it it goes it goes on. So even though they're not, you know, playing in the style of the Beatles or sounding like the Beatles, they're most definitely influenced by them.
1: You obviously come at it from a completely different perspective to everybody else. So what what's it like being Pete's younger brother?
0: It's funny enough, I got asked this the other day, and because you're so close to the whole thing, you know, with Pete, my mum, my dad, it, it was a real, real long time before the penny dropped. People would be saying to you, oh, you Pete's brother, or oh, most of the cast, but well, your dad was with the Beatles, et etc. et cetera. And uh, I didn't get it, also like my late teens, because you're that close to it. It was, it was your norm and then all of a sudden the penny dropped and I stood back and went, wow, <laughs> they were actually really, really famous. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it took a while for that penny to drop, I've got to be honest. The
1: were they always Pete's band?
0: They, they were just the band Pete was in, my dad's friends, mm-hmm. you know, um, not, hey, they're the Beasles, It was, you know, it, 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 it wasn't that.
1: So the really interesting thing about the museum is that these are all objects and items that no Beatles fan will have seen before.
0: They've basically been part of a private collection and the museum, as I said to people the whole time, what we intended to do, what we have done at the um, uh, Beatles Museum is it's authentic, it's unique, it's original. They're basically three words that I constantly use because It is Beatles fans, not just Beatles fans, but music lovers in general. They've never never been able to see these items before. And we've only just started. This is only a very small fraction of what we've got. There's more to come.
1: So the whole story is told through different items?
0: Yeah. As you were saying before, Laura, what favourite items? And I I, I don't have any favourites, but I do have items where I go that's quite cool and uh, uh, a couple of the letters there's different letters dotted out through throughout the uh, Beatles Museum but just to bring a couple to your attention uh, and here's the first one When the boys, John, Paul, George and Pete are going out to Hamburg for the third time and they're flying out to Hamburg, life's good, The reputation's growing, they've been invited back out to the Star Club to headline out there and there's a lovely letter here uh, from Pete to our mother where he's saying in the letter how they were um, interviewed by a journalist before boarding the plane, how it made them feel, everyone's watching and uh, it made them feel like they were really important stars. And I just love that, you know, you've got this band that goes on to become the icons of the music world saying, at this point in the career, we were feeling like we were important stars. Yeah, it's just, I I just love it, I just love that. And uh, another letter, a second one, when the guys are... it's 63 now. They're touring. You know, they're on the back of "Please Please Me," the the biggest band band in the UK. Beatlemania has gone into full flow. And one of the tours they did was with Chris Montez and, and Tommy Rowe. And if you read in the books, you know, it would lead you to believe that the tour was a wonderful tour, which it was. As regards was was it making money? Was the crowds there? Was it, yes, it was. It was a very very successful tour, but behind the scenes everything wasn't as hunky-dory as people imagined. And again, a lovely letter here, and this is talking about a situation that happened. And uh, if I can just quote a little bit of the letter. John Lennon pours a bottle of beer over Chris Montez's head. Well, Chris took a dim view of this and went mad and took a punch at John. Paul tried to intervene but in the scuffle that was going on landed on his back and nearly knocked his head on the pavement, nearly knocking himself out. Anyway they managed to stop the punch then John started abusing Chris as well as Tommy Rowe so Tommy Rowe took a swing at John. Neil blocked the punch, some more scuffling and eventually things calmed down and were under control and it's things like that that we do at the museum. It's like no one has had that insight to what was going on behind the scenes you would think that on that tour everyone's holding hands skipping along into the sunset being all happy jolly jolly hockey sticks which wasn't the case at all and then items you know obviously you've got to do a section of you've got to do a section of Beatles merchandise the whole thing that exploded with that which was pretty much you know you know (laughs) everything wasn't it you know uh, stockings to tights to hats to scarves to postcards to bottles to talcum powder to stamp Beatles on it and off it goes and then again you know it it goes right through you know the, the the boys going out to america we have john's american bald eagle we have john's for the USA Tour. Gifts that were given to them along the way. um, Larry Kane, who went on the road with them from WFUN Radio in the States. We have the gifts that Elvis gave them, this meeting that the Beatles did with Elvis Presley. Again, it never gets mentioned that Elvis gave them gifts at the end of that meeting, which he did. Lots of different items from Elvis that were given to them. Then, of course, there's acetates, acetates from the Hollywood Bowl show, the cello from Blue Jay Way. Hey guys, it goes on the, the medals John wore on Sergeant Pepper. You need to come and see it for yourselves.
1: Had you been collecting all these things planning a museum?
0: Oh God, no. No, it wasn't done for that at all. A lot of the items, as I said, given to me over the years, and then I became a collector. Uh, one of the collections being a Beatles collection, so for over 30 years I was collecting items, and then it reached a point where my wife said, listen, you really do need to get this stuff out the house because it's starting to look like some weird shrine. And <laughs> so, uh, so it all went into a lock-up, uh, which became a bigger lock which became two lock-ups, which became three, Three lockups, which then became two really large lockups. The idea was born about seven years, uh, seventeen years ago. Seventeen years ago, the mission was finding a building, and I wanted the building to be on Matthew Street. Yeah, you know, if you're going to do it, it's got to be on Matthew Street. It's the hub of Beetledom, I suppose. It's definitely where our um, uh, the hub of our Liverpool's tourist industry heads for. But finding a building on Matthew Street that became the problem. And it took 10 years, got close three times, and uh, lost, lost buildings on three different occasions for three different reasons, and then gave up, and then was walking across a car park, looking all forlorn, and bumped into a friend of mine, um, Patrick Gannon, and Paddy said, in true Scouse fashion, he said, what's wrong with your face? <laughs> and um, I said to him, I said, I've just had to let go of a dream, Pad. He said, why, what's the dream? And I told him, he said, why aren't you doing it? I said, you just can't get a a building on Matthew Street. I said, I I just can't do it to myself anymore. And Paddy went, I've just been offered a building on Matthew Street. I said, when? He said, 30 minutes ago. I said, who else knows about it? He said, well, no one. He said, it's a phone call to me 30 minutes ago. I said, are you buying it? To which he said, I don't know, are we?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow, that's what you want to
0: hear so um, that partnership came about uh, he phoned the gentleman there and then we had a meeting with him the following day shook hands on the deal and while we were shaking hands the gentleman concerned said uh, i've only one stipulation he said you're shaking my hand he said i believe a hand shakes your bond he said only one stipulation he said we've agreed a price he said you don't back out of this deal you don't let me down I said, OK. I said, well, I won't be back an hour. I said, but while we're making stipulations, I said, I have one for you. He said, go on. I said, my stipulation is that you don't tell anybody that this building is up for sale until we've completed, we've signed on the dotted line and the transaction's taken place. And he went, OK, fine. So no one knew that we'd bought it until it was bought.
1: And what's it like for you, Pete, walking through, take you right back?
2: It's bringing everything into. A nutshell, you know, because I've seen different bits and pieces lying around different places and, you know, part of my life and part of the house and part of the clubs. <clears throat> Stuff which rogues brought up and showed me. So to actually see it all come together under one roof, it's, it's wonderful. Um, it's, a, it's a great experience. Great experience for me walking around, so God knows what it must be like for fans. I suppose the bottom line is, if you haven't been, you've got to come. You've got to experience it for yourself.
1: What did you think of Rogue collecting all these things before he had a plan for them?
2: I think he a nutcase. <laughs> I can see a lot of my mother in, in Rogue. Okay. Mo was what we would call the queen hoarder. She would not throw a shoelace away. And thank God she didn't. Okay, because a lot of the stuff has been passed on to us and it's on display in the museum. I think the brothers have got, you know, got a little bit of Mo inside of them. You know, we don't throw away an awful lot. And consequently, when we put it all together, I think we were both surprised at what we were sitting on, weren't we?
0: Yeah, you know, and and, and to be honest with you, the the lockups are, I mean, you wouldn't believe it, but the lockups are such a mess, such a mess. And I was at the lockup about two, three weeks ago, and I'm just looking around, I'm going, Magic, where's, the, where's the magical mystery sort of stuff? And moving this and moving that and moving that. I find this uh, bowl, the bowler hat. Now that's either Mal or John's bowler hat. Whose hat is that? Is it Mal or John's? And my wife was with me and she said, well, put it on. And I put it on, and this bowler hat literally. Dropped to like practically underneath my chin, and I went, "It's mouths." <laughs> 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 That's not on display yet, but oh, it will be. It is all it is all catalogued, believe it or not, but is it in an orderly fashion? No, you know. So uh, the museums made me start to get it into an orderly fashion.
1: What are your plans for the future with the museum?
0: to keep expanding keep making the experience a a better experience you look around guys at at what we've got and strange enough I was talking about this this morning and what the Magical Beetle Museum has to offer at this moment I believe is really stunning but for me personally I look at this and go this is really just the template of what we intend to do. Every time I'm looking at these walls, I'm going, we need to put such and such there, that needs to come out, that I'll have to go there, that needs to be moved there to make space for that. You know, I really want it to be, I really want it to be for a Beatles fan or a music lover that you could spend an hour on each floor and still not see everything. That's what I'd like to head for.
1: Of all the places that you played around Merseyside, did you have favorites?
2: Well, venues. venues, uh, Casbah for me, of course, was special because of, you know, the, the history that went there. I'd say it would be a toss-up between Little and Town Hall and The Cavern. We spent, I suppose, two different circuits, two different types of clubs, uh, well, you couldn't say nah, Little and Town Hall it was a club, that was playing on a stage, you know, in a, in a basically church hall, you know, town hall, and The Cavern was The Cavern. You know, it had its own atmosphere. But most probably, those three as venues in Liverpool stand out the most. You know, they were my favourites.
1: What was it like on the Cavern stage?
2: Different. Music used to boom round. It was a little bit getting used to. It had its own. I suppose you could turn and say, honestly, persona. You know, the smell and the sweat and the you know the disinfectant. Um, you could always tell if people had been to the Cavern or played at the Cavern. You know, they either came out with cavern dandruff, as we called it, which was paint off the ceilings, or they smelled a disinfectant, you know, because of the disinfectant they used to put down on the floors and to clean the toilets with. But it was part of, it was rock and roll.
1: And you couldn't get a drink there in those days?
2: No, nothing was licensed in those days. Caswell wasn't licensed. Lidlant Town Hall wasn't licensed. So it was Coca-Cola and tea and coffee and buns and all that kind of stuff.
1: You thought this was just going to keep on going and you were going to keep playing with the Beatles. Had you, had you thought about the future?
2: No, we were taking it day by day. I was anyway. We had this pipe dream that we wanted to be rock stars. And I suppose our pipe dream was that basically we wanted to have a re- record company, a uh, record that went into the top of the charts in England. And of course, what emanated after that, no one in the wildest dreams would have ever envisaged that. But our sights were set on getting a record out. And it goes to the top of the English Hippie parade. That was what we wanted to achieve. And of course, we had the war cry, which went with it. Many times you hear that rallying on stage. If you want to turn around and I say, "Where are we going, guys?" and we go to the top of most, or the top most. That was the war cry, and that's what we strive to achieve. We did. We got a record contract initially with Polydor, and then of course we were Epstein came along, you know, became our manager.
1: Do you remember him visiting? There's that sort of famous story about him walking down Matthew Street and going in the cavern to listen to the Beatles.
2: We never actually saw him. Um, well, I didn't, uh, personally, but we were told that he had been in the, the, the cavern. It emanated from a young guy called Brian Jones going into the, the record shop, which is the old story about, you know, my Bonnie, Tony Sheridan and the Beatles and it was the Beat Brothers and all that kind of stuff and uh, as a result of that um, he basically turned around and said you got to go and see the Beatles, they're only playing at the cabin down the road. Well that's the history of Valves. Brian has allegedly went, as a result of that interview, down to the cabin, saw these guys on stage and fell in love with us, right, and left the message with Bob Wooler, turning around and saying he wanted to see us, you know, in his office that afternoon if it was possible as he had some business to talk with us and of course the message was passed on we went to the grapes at a couple of pints which was our our dinner in those days you know once we'd done a dinner time session and we popped off to the NEMS offices and we walked in there and we met him Uh, it was the first time we'd actually met him in person and we'd seen him in the record shop because we used to go down to Nems and plagued the staff and caused mayhem down there because we go down and listen to records. New releases in the Coast of Girls would suddenly realized that the Beatles were in town and they were in the record stop, you know, and down there playing, so there'd be more staff, you know, listening to us, listening to music that used to be working, you know, which Brian wasn't too happy about because he basically found out. As we found out afterwards, he used to curse us. Yeah, he used to be like, oh my God, those those hooligans are in the, you know, in the shop again. But as before as, he got involved with the beat. Before he got involved, yeah, to us. You can imagine it, I suppose, you know, four leather-clad fellas, you know, walking in in cowboy boots and, you know, long hair and, you know, the girls all going wild and, lolling around sound booths listening to new releases and then saying, yeah, we played that one and taking the words down and asking the girls to, you know, copy the words down for us and come and pick them up afterwards. <laughs> he used to cause quite a bit of a ruckus, you know. Um, so you can see why he used to call us hooligans. But, you know, the hooligans evolved and, you know, became the Beatles, he became the manager. I suppose to us he was pretty straight-laced if you look at it, the manner of Brian in those days, uh, pinstripe suit, uh, very clean cut, very well-spoken, you know, hair conventional length, whole shoes always polished. Uh, so when he basically made the approach to us and turned around and said he'd like to manage us, and I suppose it was it, it was openness as regards the, the way he presented it to us and the fact that it was like fine. I've never done it before. Love what I see. I think I can do something with you. It's a two-way thing, right? right. I'd like to try it. If it works, it works. If it doesn't work, no strings attached. You don't like me, you walk. I don't get on with you, I'll walk. He was very open about it, you that know. seemed all right to you. Very candid. We went away, talked it over amongst ourselves, went and saw our parents. And the consensus of opinion was, yeah, we'll give them a shot. And of course we did. And as we always turn around and said afterwards, you know, cliche if you looked at it, That was the epitome of a manager to us, you know. He was rich, uh, big white car, didn't smoke, pinstripe suits, very clean cut, owned a record shop, can do things for us. (laughs) So that was the the manner of our approach. We got signed up, and of course, history portrays now. He took the Beatles to become the icons of the music industry. Yeah, but without you? I was there for a little while, you know. I was there for a little while, yeah.
1: So, how do you feel
2: about how everything turned out? I always turn around and say, now you look back at it, things happen for a reason. At that time, absolutely devastated. Because he would spent, known him for three, played one for two. We'd achieved so much in those two frantic years. Number one band in Hamburg, number one band in Liverpool. We topped the Mersey-Bee-Poll. Uh, we'd got a recording contract. We had a German recording contract. We'd had record releases. We were due for future record releases. We were running high octane. And it was something which, you know, you weren't prepared for because everything was going along. You were part of that wonderful wagon that was rolling. And then when you get told about it and the way it was done, it was, it was left a little bit of a sour taste for a while simply because of the circumstances...
1: Do you remember the conversation
2: or have you sort of blocked it out there? No, no, it's it's the words living with me forever. You know, I mean, it's one of those things. I was called into the office. I'd seen Brian the night before. We'd played the cavern. And he basically said, I want to see in the office in the morning, Pete, about 10 o'clock. I said, yeah, fine. Don't know more about it because prior to him taking over the managership, Mo Ma and myself had handled the, the business side of things. As regards bookings and fixing prices and talking to promoters. And I just thought it was another brain picking session. And of course I waltzed in happy as Larry. And I could tell when I walked in, Brian was wasn't as cool, calm, plus itself. <laughs> I suppose agitated is the word. And he talked around the subject for a while and then he basically turned around and said, Pete, he said, I don't know how to explain this to you, he said, but the boys want you out. And it's already been arranged that Ringle would be in the band on Saturday
1: behind your back
2: yeah uh, that's why i'd say for a little while i left a little bit of a sour taste the circumstances and how it was done at that time that was the bombshell i turned round around and said you know what was the reason for it they said well they feel he's a better drummer never held the to that because a lot of people in liverpool alleged that i was the best drummer at that time but i leave that up to public opinion <laughs> And certainly, if you're a drummer, you're always the best drummer on the planet anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> that goes with drummer's pride. But it was very much a case of, what was the reality of a hit when I got back home again. I talked to my mother, Mona. Uh, she was absolutely couldn't believe what had happened. And then I just basically broke down and cried. But it happened. And it, it's something which you've got to get over very, very quickly. And within a short space of time, I adopted the philosophy that it's not about yesterday, it's about today and tomorrow. And my karma, I'm a big believer in karma. At that time, it didn't make sense. Now, when you look back, the life we've led and the things we've achieved and the family life I lead, and the Beatles Museum, fine, I'm a happy guy.
1: Would you want to, that level of fame, it seems like it comes with its own problems.
2: I've always turned around and said it would have been nice to have sampled it and make a decision for yourself. I never had that position, but other things in life have gratified me for that. So the fact I never sampled it, I sampled fame, quite a degree of fame, not the icons of the music industry, but enough to keep me happy
1: you seem very philosophical about
2: it all? I think I've always been a philosophical guy. Runs in the family. You know, we've been through so much as a family, as individual members. Hmm. So philosophy and karma are strong points.
1: And could you bring yourself to go and, and see them perform?
2: If they ever got together again. I mean, not that it ever happened, you know, because you know, Back
1: then, did you go and see them, or did you, were you
2: just like... I never purposely went. I played on the same bill as them four times. Uh, I joined the bank of and the All-Stars. We were second support to them. And uh, basically, we were coming off stage. They were going on stage. Nothing was mentioned. We passed like ships in the night, and it's been that way ever since.
1: And how do you feel about it? Is this is your this has happened to your big brother are you angrier about it than peter's or?
2: um no you know my
0: my view on it is if you said if, if you said to people hey this is the biggest rock and roll band in the world they are a music phenomenon and you can have two years to be part of that or would you prefer not to i think Nine out of ten people would say, "I'll have two years of that, thank you very much." And Pete had two years of that. And there's only six people that can call themselves Beatles. And I and I, I always say this to people when they talk about fifth Beatles and sixth Beatles and this Beetle and that Beetle. And my view on it, whether it's shared, not shared, neither here or there. Really, it's just my view, my opinion. There was only six Beatles, and that is based on. There was only six guys that were actually a member of that band and were referred to as members of the Beatles. And that was John, Paul, George, Stuart, Pete and Ringo. That's it. Six guys in the world that were Beatles. That's why we've got them outside the building.
1: So you see, the, you see this museum as about the Beatles in its entire
0: entire the whole journey 59 to 70 and anyone who was a member of that band and then we also go into the people that were in the inner inner circle the people that helped them along the way Mo, Alan Williams Brian Epstein George Martin and the list goes on